Um, well, CFC, we're going to uh, pray and then get right into it because we've got a lot to unpack today as we continue our journey through the book of Revelation. Uh, this is your first Sunday or first time with us in a long time. We are in the book of Revelation, and today we're going to be in chapter 9. You can start making your way there if you like, but I'm going to begin us with a word of prayer. Father, we've, um, we've gathered here to worship you, Lord, but one of those ways, uh, the primary way to worship you, Lord, is to receive your word uh, in a way where it equips us to live for you, Father. So we pray that this would not just be an exercise of information, but of transformation. And uh, we need your grace in order for that to be the reality here this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, you know, as we, as we go from chapter to chapter in the book of Revelation, like I said, we'll be in chapter 9 uh, today. Um, <laughs> I'm just reminded each week of um, how difficult it is to cover everything here. And so some things I will touch on, and I'm not dodging certain things. I just, I'm trying to pick my spots. Um, but uh, I want to extend the same invitation that I had last week tonight at our uh, CFC course. Um, I'll take the first 10 or so minutes to just take questions from any of you on anything related to the book of Revelation, eschatology, end times, uh, this specific passage that we're in. Um, and I will address certain things. If you think I'm skipping something here, we can unpack more of it there. So some things I'll camp out on, some things I'll hit quickly, and won't unpack every word, every phrase. And then, of course, we're also navigating how many different views there are on, on a lot of these things. And, of course, I, I come at it from a particular view, and I hope that if my view is a little different than yours, that you wouldn't be offended by that. I would hope that you would save that offense for when um, I get the gospel wrong, uh, hopefully I don't do that, uh, or um, something that's core doctrine. But as we go to Revelation 9, I'm reminded back when we began the book of Revelation, I told you uh, one of the mistakes that we see being made in the reading of the book of Revelation is to read the book of Revelation in one hand and then interpret it by using in the other hand what? Well, that's the right way to do it, the Old Testament. What do people normally do? The newspaper, okay? It's the newspaper, and then, oh, and match that up. I, I guess, you know, the, the Russians are the locusts. I don't know. They, they, everything has a one-to-one -one correspondence with what's happening right now in, in the Middle East or in Europe or in the States. So I think the right way to do it is to have the Old Testament in one hand, which helps us understand what John is doing with his symbols, what he's talking about, but that doesn't mean it's irrelevant to the newspaper. Okay, what I'm saying about reading the book of Revelation with the newspaper in the other hand is to interpret the book of Revelation with the newspaper. But if you read Revelation rightly, it gives you eyes to see what's happening in the newspaper. You're like, I thought you just said the opposite. What I'm saying is we're not trying to say that politician is the Antichrist, that uh, invention is the, the mark of the beast, that army is that geographical entity. What I am saying is, as you look around the world around you and you see tragedy and catastrophe and sin and evil, Revelation pulls back the curtain and goes, that's what's behind it. And that's how we're supposed to read 
Revelation 9. We, we are in the rolling out of the seven trumpets. As I explained to you before, I think the seven seals, the seven trumpets, this isn't, uh, the seven seals happen first and then the trumpets. So we're not asking today which trumpet are we in or which seal are we in. Okay, I think you get into difficulties when you start doing that. Try to go, sit at home and try to figure out which one's coming next month. Which one are we in now so I can see what's happening next year. I think all of the trumpets, all of the seals are happening throughout the church age. As I've explained before, you can go back to prior sermons to, to hear me unpack that a little more. But I'm just trying to orient us to where we are now. Now in chapter 8, we've got the seven trumpets going. And the seven trumpets are divided by the first four and then the second three. The first four we covered as the angels blew those trumpets, uh, the first, the second, the third, then the fourth in chapter, tw- in, uh, chapter 8, verse 12. Then in verse 13 of chapter 8, which we didn't cover last time, because that's the transition into chapter 9, John says this, he says, Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets, that the three angels are about to blow. So we saw four trumpets, and we're like, man, that's bad, right? It was natural disasters, catastrophes that uh, hurt the earth itself. Not the inhabitants are hurt by it because we need the earth to live, but the, the attack of those four trumpets were on nature itself. And then you see this eagle, some translations say angel, I think it's correct to read it, eagle, flying overhead and announcing these these three woes. Several Old Testament passages connect an eagle in flight with the announcement of judgment. Uh, we might be able to look at some of that tonight at, at the CFC course. Or maybe this, this perhaps is uh, one of those four living creatures we saw back in chapter 4, where one of those of the four living creatures was described as an eagle in flight. Uh, but it's an announcement. It's an angelic announcement. And throughout the Old Testament, we do see this eagle in flight theme with, connected with the theme of, hey, God is speaking. That's what the trumpets are doing. Doo-doo-doo, hey, everybody pay attention. It's like their ancient alarm, okay? They're sounding an alarm and going, hey, this is about to happen. And so here we have this eagle saying, you saw the first four, you thought the first four were bad? The next three are woes. Not W-H-O-A, like whoa, but W-O-E, bad, all right? Woe, woe, woe. Three more trumpets. That will not affect the earth, but will affect those who dwell on the earth directly at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. I think not about to blow in the future in time. I think about to blow in his vision. And his vision captures this whole church age, describing the age that we now live in. I think the trumpets are happening now. I think the seals are happening now. They are about God's judgments now that are ramping up toward the final judgment. They're not the final judgment yet. There is a final judgment coming, but these are ramping up. And so as we look around the world and we see things are getting bad, things are getting worse, things are terrible. Not everything's terrible, but you see this uh, pattern of things worsening, don't you? And as you read the book of Revelation, you see each seal, you see each trumpet, etc. It shows you what's happening in the world around you and it peels the curtain so you can see what's happening behind it. We call that spiritual warfare. And so the next three trumpets are referred to as woes. The first one is from 9-1 to 12. The second one starts at 9-13. And then the third one we don't see until 11-15. So you see the slowing down, right? It's slowing down. We're just going to cover the first two today. 
the way in which these are um, focused is the first four are natural disasters and the next are more obviously demonic and targeted at unbelievers. The first four trumpets bother everybody, Christians included, I think. But of course, we suffer natural disasters. We do that with a greater hope. We know where we know where we're heading. But these next three woes do not target believers. You know, I talked to you last week about how some people believe that this is all after believers have been taken out of the earth. Well, then why would these three woes target specifically unbelievers and not harm the believers? It's because believers are there, beloved. Believers are there looking around them, seeing unbelievers getting attacked by these demonic forces, as we'll see in just a moment. So here's what I'd like to do. Because this is so dense, I want to make sure that I at least read everything that's here. So I want to read all of chapter 9. And if you're sitting there going, man, this is some weird stuff. Okay, I know. It's a vision, and it's apocalyptic, and it is weird, okay? But it points us to some really important things that we need to reflect on. So I'm going to read straight through chapter 9, verse 1 to the end. Then we'll back up, make some comments, and then we'll end with, what in the world does this have to do with us right now? Okay? Chapter 9, verse 1. Here we go with the the woes. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or, or any green plant or any tree, but only those who only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. 
by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This time I'm not joking when I tell you we might be here for a minute, okay? But at least we're providing lunch, so chill, all right? (laughs) I will try my best to get through this in a a timely fashion, but I, I also want to, as some of you have pulled me aside and reminded me, don't rush, okay? Noted. I do want to make sure we try our best to make sense of what's happening here um, in a way that's helpful to you, even if I don't cover every specific detail. What's happening here? This first woe is the fifth trumpet that's being blown in chapter 9, verse 1. And this first woe, here's, here's what it is. It is an unleashing of demons to induce torment on unbelievers on the earth. The first woe, or the fifth trumpet, is the unleashing of demons to induce torment on unbelievers on the earth. So we see here is Satan releasing demons who will inflict pain on unbelievers. And we see that in 1 through 6. John sees a fallen star, not a falling star, a star that had already fallen, a star that had already fallen to the earth. It's past tense. Well, technically, it's the perfect tense. This had already happened. This is connected to the judgment of Satan and his angels, uh, which are described as stars falling from heaven in Jewish literature, uh, even outside of Scripture. Just how the Jewish, what the Jewish understanding was of uh, Satan and demons and angels, and how that whole thing happened with good angels, and then now there's bad angels. The angels fell like stars. They were glorious, they were bright, and they fell to the earth in Jewish literature like First Enoch. Again, not scripture there, but it shows us the language that you're, they're using to describe and the language that John is channeling that would have been familiar to many readers. But scripture itself, uh, Jesus describes this in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, doesn't he? He says, Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Okay, so there, there it is. We also see this in Revelation 12, uh, verse 9. We'll be there in a few weeks. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. This makes it very possible to view Wormwood, that star that came and fell and and made the drinking water bitter um, in chapter 8 as possibly a, a demonic being as well. So here, I think the best way to read this is not a physical star that falls to the earth. That really doesn't even make sense, how a star can fall to little old earth. That just really doesn't make sense. But if you're reading it with the apocalyptic symbolism that is normal across Scripture, this is a fallen angel, an angel that fell to the earth and is... here depicted as opening up the pit, the bottomless pit, to release his minions, his colleagues, his followers, or whatever you want to call them. He's releasing them. 
And he's given the key by Jesus Christ because Jesus holds the keys to what? Death and Hades. Jesus holds the keys. And anything that demons do, operating out of hell, they do it because Jesus gives permission to do it. Now, some of y'all, that might be shocking if this is the first time you've heard it. We visited that several times in this church. But it means that Jesus Christ is in charge. It doesn't mean that he's the one inflicting the pain. It means that he is the one who uh, opens the gate and gives permission to do A, B, or C. And they're only able to do A, B, or C. They can't do D unless Jesus says okay. Now, we see this opening up of this pit, this opening up of this shaft. He opened the shaft, verse 2, of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. You see here the smoke is going up, the smoke is darkening the sun. As we saw with the sixth seal, we're in the trumpets now, but remember back seal number 6 in chapter 6, verse 12, the sun became black. Then we saw with the fourth trumpet, in chapter 8, verse 12, a third of the sun. So do you see, do you see what I'm saying? And I hate to keep, I'm going to keep hitting this just because I'm trying to dislodge only one way to read the book of Revelation and every other way is heresy. That's what bothers me about it. If there's only one way to read it and everyone else is a liberal. Okay? How many times does the sun get dark? It's a third here, all the way there, then again here. And it's like, which one are we? Well, has the sun gone dark? Well, let's track it down to the eclipse. This is why they spend this much time on the rest of doctrine and they spend all their time trying to figure out using star charts and zodiac calendars to try to figure out which, which seal are we about to be in. It's all the, describing the same age and it's not a physical blocking of the sun necessarily but it's talking about spiritual darkness and blindness. It's talking about the smoke coming up from hell. As hell influences the earth, there's more darkness and less light. Doesn't that match the rest of what John writes in his gospel? If this is the, first, the same John, of course it connects either way, that the real presence of light on the earth is Christ through his church. Aside from that, there's increasing darkness. And I think that's all we need to see here. We're not waiting for a day when the, you know, we're okay, we're good. Demons are barely doing anything. But one day, you're going to look outside It's 2 p.m. and the sun is dark. Now you know demons are active. Does that even fit in the rest of your theology? Of course it doesn't. So what would they say? They'll say, well, they're active now, but they're going to be active, active later. I guess that's possible. Well, the view that sees these things as chronologically happening in order, I think, struggle to see how they're going to happen literally but the view that sees all of these seals and all these trumpets as parallel to each other, we don't struggle with that. We just see that this is happening now. Is there increasing darkness on the earth now? Yes, I'm not staring out at the sun to see it happen. I'm looking in the, in the news. I'm seeing it in my feed. We're seeing it in schools. And what they open up is a horde of ravenous locusts. Now, any of you that are reading through the Bible, you're in the Old Testament, you see locusts, they're always hordes. You're reading through Joel, one of those plagues in Exodus. Locusts eat vegetation and they leave it bare. They destroy livelihood because they eat everything. Okay, that's, that's why. Do the demons actually look like locusts? Or are, these, are we waiting for actual locusts when it's like cicada season that we start pulling out Revelation 9? No. This is, this is saying demons are like locusts. They're ravenous, they're hungry, 
Except this time, they're not after vegetation. That was the first four trumpets. These ravenous, locust-like demons are after people. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree. Again, just remember the grass was already burned up. Do you remember that? In chapter 8, the grass was already burned up. So why would they have to be told not to hurt the grass? Again, chronological, you're like, okay, now there's no grass. Oops, oh, there's grass again. Oh, it grew back. Or it's just making a larger point. The first four were after nature, and these are after people, specifically targeting people. I think sometimes that's harder for us to really realize and believe than it is to believe that sometime in the future, huge locusts with women here are going to start flying around the city streets of Chicago, stinging people with scorpion tails. Like, oh, that might happen in the future. But if we go, no, the stinging is happening now. Ah, that's kind of hard to believe, is it? I don't think we're waiting for beasts to actually stalk your town, creeping past your window at night, stinging people with physical tails. But that doesn't mean that they don't actually target and torment people. This is, what's, this is a symbolic representation of what we understand as spiritual warfare, except these people have nothing to fight with, and so they lose because they're unbelievers and they're unsealed. They're ravenous, they're hungry, and they're after the unbelievers of this world. And the ones that they're unable to touch are the ones who are sealed, verse 4. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They are unable to touch those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, spoiler, when we get to the mark of the beast in chapter 13, don't we hear about what's the actual mark? Will you know if you have the mark? Is it a UPC code? Oh my goodness, it's a QR code. Tattooed on your hand, tattooed on your head. Okay, let me ask you this. Is the seal of God on the foreheads of his saints literal or figurative? Because if it's literal, I'm in trouble. I don't have, do you see anything on my forehead? Should we start tattooing stuff on our heads? This is the problem. Here it's figurative, and then somehow in, Matthew, in uh, Revelation 13, then it's actually physical, a physical sign. And some Christians are so confused by this, they wonder if you'll even know that you got the mark. Is it the vaccine? Oh my goodness. Maybe I took the mark. I'm out. Beloved, it's as obvious as spitting on Christ. When you're invited to partake of the meal, when you're invited to partake of forgiveness in Jesus Christ, when you're invited by God's grace to step into the ark and avoid the flood, when you're invited to escape Sodom and Gomorrah and leave, and you say no because you'd rather live in Sodom and Gomorrah, you say no because you don't believe in the flood, you say no because the world is too comfortable, you spit on Christ and you take the mark of the beast. Or you receive forgiveness in Christ and you're sealed and therefore protected. Those are the two options. There's not a third group in the book of Revelation, just like there's not a third group through the Gospels. There's sheep and there's goats. There's 
the thief on the left and the thief on the right. There are those who are in, there are those who are out. Even the parable of the soils, there's four soils, but really there's two, isn't there? There's three different kinds of soils that don't produce fruit and only one that produces fruit. One is in, the rest are out. That's scary stuff. And this, if, this, if this sounds scary, that's what it's meant to do. Here's the Bible's horror movie for you. But it's not aliens. It's not monsters that literally come out of the ground. This isn't some video game. It's happening now. And it's the torment of the minds of the unbelievers. But Christians are unaffected by it. Oh, we might be tempted by it. We might even be confused by it. But if we're really sealed by the Lord, demons aren't attacking the minds of unbelievers. So, don't worry about Mark of the Beast. We'll get to that in chapter 13. That was a little, all right, a little heads up. I don't think this is a physical mark or seal. It is spiritual. And although the first four trumpets affect everybody, these three are specifically targeted on the unsealed. That lack of seal gives the demons permission to attack them. They're not given power to kill, but they're given power to torment and make people wish they were dead. Make people wish they were dead. In those days, people, verse 6, will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. That's how bad the torment will be. I'd rather be dead than have life. Now, these demonic beings are described in verses 7 through 11 as an unstoppable army. I'm not going to unpack each of these symbols at great length. I don't, I don't know that, 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 that we need to do that. But look, he says in verse 7, in appearance, the locusts were like. Okay, so this, this is not an exact description. These are, he's trying to get it close, and he's using symbols that might help you understand the, the danger here. Okay, that is what he's trying to unpack is he's stacking these images to make it scary and to, to help you understand how uh, dangerous this horde is. So we don't have to get too precise. We can kind of capture the vibe and when we take them all together. But we can take a stab at it. They're described as horses for battle. That means they're a big army, okay? They're here to attack. They're not playing around. Maybe the crowns speak to their conquering nature. Maybe the fact that they have human faces shows that they're, they're persons, Demons are fallen angels. Fallen angels are persons. Their personality. Think they're sentient beings. Perhaps the hair. Some might suggest that it means seduction. That they seduce. They deceive. Big teeth, like a lion. Big destruction. I mean, they devour. Their iron breastplates means they're formidable. How can you fight back against these things? The noise means they're innumerable. There's so many of them. And then the text tells us they sting for five months with those scorpion tails. They sting people for five months. Again, what are our options here? We can pull out the charts and the chronology maps and try to figure out where five months fits into the three and a half years of this and seven years of that and a thousand years of this. Or we can go, this is symbolic, just like a third has been symbolic throughout these. A third means God is restraining and not just devastating everything. They're put on a leash And they're allowed to attack for five months, meaning it's not the final finale yet, but they have enough leash to do a lot of damage, right? And so I think the five months speaks to the restraint 
especially that's a small number compared to a lot of the other numbers we see in the book of Revelation, I think it speaks to the fact that they're still on a leash even though they're allowed to torment people. And then verse 11, they have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, destruction, or his name in Greek is Apollyon, destroyer. And I think the best fit for that is Satan. Okay, I think the best fit for that, you be like, is Satan an angel? Yes, a fallen one. A fallen one. But when we see angel, that doesn't necessarily mean the good guys. And here, clearly, he's not. He's the destroyer. He is destruction. If this is the same person who, who he doesn't just release them, he's king over them. See, that's the issue. He's, he rules them. He leads them. He gives them orders. And then verse 12. Goodness, just read verse 12. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Like if you read the first 11 verses and you're like, man. And then he's like, that's just one of them. Okay, do you you see what John is doing here? He's trying to help you understand the, the stakes are high. This is the world we live in. At the seven churches that we saw in the beginning of the book of Revelation live in this world. And every church that is blessed by the reading of this prophecy are understanding that we live in this world full of these woes. God sees it. He doesn't just see it. He knows who's doing it. He doesn't just know who's doing it over there. He's given Christ permission to both grant it and restrain it. But they are judgments. They are judgments on the world. And specifically with these woes, they're judgments on unbelievers. Then the second woe begins. The second woe begins, and it's very similar. It's very similar to the first woe, but here we see the second woe, and we're not going to do the third woe today, so we're going to see the second one and try to unpack it. But the second woe is a little different from the first one because the first one inflicts torment, not death. The second one does inflict death. So when you're reading the first one, you're like, I I know of people that wish they were dead, but I know other people who do die. This doesn't mean every single death of an unbeliever is due to a demon, but some of them, a lot of them, and we, we can't, just like with the natural disasters, I can't go, that earthquake was a judgment for this, that tsunami was a judgment for that, but we just know in general, natural disasters are judgments. And who of us can say, well, that nation doesn't deserve it if we all fall short of the glory of God? Now we get to these woes, and I'm not saying that person that died in the car accident, that was a demon. That person that has cancer, that's a demon. But it's also an error to go, well, demons aren't doing anything yet. We're only in the first trumpet. Is is Satan a roaring lion now or later? Is he seeking to devour now? or in the future on some tribulational chart. All of us agree now. The only difference is some people say, well, now this level and now a greater level. But it is now. So as we read the second woe, we see that death is inflicted upon people in the second woe. The sixth angel, verse 13, blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God 
saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. There's the restraint again. What's going on with this particular prophecy? This will be brief, uh, but you can take note of a couple things here. These restrained angels are probably fallen angels that want to destroy, like that dog on the leash that's growling and foaming at the mouth, but it's on the leash or it's behind the fence until the leash is let go or until the fence is open. And so they want to destroy, but they don't have permission granted until they do have permission granted. The Euphrates River, that's a weird thing, but if you connect it to the Old Testament, again, the Euphrates uh, is, is uh, connected to uh, Old Testament prophecies about an army that is, uh, dwells beyond the river Euphrates that would bring judgment on Israel. That's a loose allusion. That doesn't mean this has to do with Jews, but it does, have to, it does mean that it is God's judgment on a rebellious people, as it was then. A stronger connection is Jeremiah 46. You can look it up later, but the Euphrates is there. And that is with regard to God's judgment on Egypt and specifically using locusts standing by the river Euphrates. The locusts are ready to go at the river Euphrates until they're given permission and boom, they attack Egypt, which is God's judgment on them. So John is not saying this is that. He's using language from then to show you what's happening now in the world. That just as in the Old Testament, God unleashed restrained judgments on the world that weren't the final judgment, God is doing that now. Restrained judgments on the world that is not the final judgment, they're just previews to it, precursors to it. These restrained four angels are perhaps connected to the four winds in chapter 7, verse 1. That's where we really saw God restraining things. He's restraining these four winds to not destroy everything. And now we see these four angels, not just winds, but these four fallen angels, I think, given permission to go on the attack. And the basic idea is that they are restrained just as the prior demons were, the locusts, but the difference here is that the locusts gave torment, not death. These guys deliver death. They do it through a threefold plague that we see uh, toward the end of chapter 9. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, what three plagues? Fire, smoke, sulfur. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths, for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. I remember sitting in church as a little kid. It was a Baptist church in New Hampshire, and we went Wednesday night to church service. Now, back then we had Sunday school, Sunday service, Sunday night service, Wednesday night service, and then I think there was something on Friday. Did not play around. And I remember one particular, I think it was Wednesday night, it might have been a Sunday night, it was definitely evening because it kind of made it scarier to watch this movie about how it'll be in the end times. And I particularly, I remember this particular scene and it was really bad special effects. If you think 
some Christian, ba- some Christian movies aren't real great right now. Back then, it was like, I mean, it was, I mean, it was, it was pretty bad, just finger puppets and stuff. Um, but I remember a shadow cast on a wall, and you see this like scorpion being with a tail, and and it's like they're basically saying at some point in the future there will be horses with serpent tails or locusts with scorpion tails actually physically walking around the city. The problem that I have with that is it makes it take the danger of this text and cast it into the future because I don't have to worry about it right now. And the reason why we're so fascinated with the newspaper is to see, is this happening yet? Because if it's not yet, I can kind of relax. That is the opposite of what Revelation is doing. It is now. It is now. Not physical horses with serpent tails. That's just dumb. Or... It's showing you that these are horses, meaning they're for battle. It's Satan's cavalry. And the same snake that bit through deception in the garden is going through the towns now. It is deception. It's deception that torments people. It is through that torment that he leads people to death by various means. You read the book of Job, God granted Satan permission then, and Satan was able to bring storms, set homes on fire. Do you remember when terrorists attacked the family? Satan did that. And, but he tells him, you can't touch Job's body. Okay, now you can touch his body, but not kill him. What is Satan allowed to do? Anything. He's powerful, but he's on a leash. Does Satan have the ability to torment minds, to change people psychologically? to make them of a more depraved, more debased mind, read the opening to the letter to the Romans. Romans isn't about the future. Romans is about now. That God hands people over to this crazy mind, stung with the venom of a scorpion that seeps into your blood system and makes you worse than you already were. It's a judgment. And you're like, well, God doesn't judge like that. I, I assure you he does. Read through the Bible. Again, God's not inflicting it. He's opening the leash for the demons that these people worship, we'll see that in a minute, inflict the torment and the death on their own worshipers. And these three plagues of uh, fire and smoke and sulfur, that triplet is from God's judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember that Sodom and Gomorrah is used as an analogy of hell. Hell. So what is the deal with opening the shaft, smoke is, smoke is coming out, horses are running around, sulfur is coming out of their nose and their mouth, fire and smoke are coming out of their mouth. It's supposed to remind you of Sodom and Gomorrah slash hell. And John is telling you, literally, all hell is breaking loose. All hell is breaking loose. Now, hell is coming out, spitting, regurgitating its hordes onto the earth. And like a plague, they're spreading. And that disease is spreading on people and tormenting them or killing them. Then amazingly, verses 20 to 21, the unbelievers who are not killed by these demons... What do you think they do? Oh, please let us in the ark. They still don't repent. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent 
of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons. Do you see the irony? They worship their own killers. They didn't repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. That's constant Old Testament theme. You guys are worshiping things that can't do anything for you. Here, not only are they worshiping things that can't do anything for them, they're worshiping things that torment them and kill them. Verse 21, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So as we see this particular ending to this passage, chapter 9, we're still in the second woe. The fact that the text emphasizes that they didn't repent shows that their survival is an opportunity to repent. So when God holds them back and says, you can torment but don't kill, he's giving opportunity to repent. That's why John points out in the end, he's like, and they still didn't repent. That means they're supposed to, but they didn't. So as society crumbles around us and people are like, man, I, I, I need an answer. Remember back when uh, the electoral race was between um, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and Donald Trump won. And Tina was immediately contacted. I hope I can share this. You shared it before. Tina was immediately contacted by friends who, I don't think they even knew which way we voted or anything like that, but they were definitely, it was like, if Hillary doesn't get elected, the world is going to end. And then Hillary didn't get elected. Tina feels like I, I should encourage them. They just seem depressed. Meets a couple of these ladies for lunch. Grown women weeping at a lunch table that this person was elected and not this person. And then in a moment of, I think, almost clarity, one of them tells Tina and the other one agrees, see, that's, what, that's what's awesome about you. You have like this hope that whoever's elected, it doesn't rock your world. Are you invited to that hope? Yes. Outside of that hope, you only have politicians and policies. What else do you have? And they fail you every, every term. As Christians, our hope is not in policies, as involved as we should be. Our hope is not in politicians, and I'm not saying we shouldn't vote, but that's not our hope, see, even when they see it, the hopelessness and the loss, they don't want it. They don't want it. God's judgments are meant to turn them to capture their attention. But in the end, all said and done, when people are ensconced in their idolatry, they don't want to turn now, I don't think that this passage is saying nobody turns because, of course, the church is growing and expanding and you and I were once idolaters. Let us be reminded. Change and transformation is possible for those upon whom God sets his seal. But this is not going to lead to a huge revival in the end where everyone's suddenly Christian in the end. I, I don't see that happening. I see that as these plagues get worse, again, in my view, these are 
ramping up, these judgments ramp up to the final one. Before the final one, it's not like we're going to be at a place where, hey, we don't need a final one. Everyone became Christian. There's going to be a people who dig their heels in, in rebellion against the only one that can offer them life, and in worship of the one that gives them death. And we might say, well, some of them worship, but not all of them worship. Some of them are just thieves. Some of them are just kind of sexually immoral, you know, what's the big deal? He lumps them all together. So here's two mistakes you can make with this text. One mistake is to say, you've got demon worshipers put next to, you know, the guy that steals stuff. And, uh, you know, hey, we have to listen to scripture, but apparently God sees those the same. You know, but he left out, what did he leave out? You know, bearing false witness? Well, I guess that's okay now. You're not necessarily demonically infected if you bear false witness against your neighbor, but if you steal from your neighbor, that one still counts. These represent the whole Ten Commandments. The worship of the demons represents the first table of commandments that are Godward, and the second are representative of the second table that are neighborward. In other words, people that live in rebellion against God, they don't love God, they don't worship God, and they don't love neighbor. So this isn't about the specific sins that are demonic and the rest of them aren't demonic. All of it is demonic. The result, the grand result, is people who live in contrast to the Ten Commandments or the top two, the two upon which all God's commands hang, right? Love God and love neighbor as yourself. They hate God. And what do they do with neighbor? Immoral acts with neighbor. Although call it love. Or steal from neighbor. Or murder neighbor. Or use sorcery to deceive neighbors. But these are people that are lost. They're not just innocently lost. They are in rebellion. And they rebel against the Lord's commands. That doesn't mean everyone who's in rebellion is uh, demonically possessed. I think we see that um, people's rebellion are demonically enhanced. Provoked. Enhanced. But no one's going to be in hell like, I would have been perfectly fine if it weren't for this demon. They're unleashed on people already in rebellion. And rather than waking up to how things are getting worse, they just dig their heels in and keep going down that trail of things getting worse. So here's the point, and then we'll just talk quickly about relevance for today. I think the point of Revelation 9 is that even now, God is unleashing restrained judgments on this world but still many will refuse to repent. Still many will refuse to repent. How is this relevant for us today? I see that line about people being tormented to the point that they wish they were dead, and I'm not exactly sure what that means. If they want death and they can't find death, when maybe suicide is available, or suicide is a reality for many. But consider this. Statistical reports are consistent that, for example, suicidal rates and tendencies are higher among, for example, not only higher among this community, but suicidal rates and suicidal tendencies are higher among the transgender community. I'm not bashing transgenders. 
I do think it's unloving toward them to just say, you're great. The unwillingness to speak a simple truth, like God created us male and female, is cowardice. And it is unloving to let someone wallow in their confusion. If it's confusion, some of them are generally confused perhaps. Others are just in straight rebellion. Others realize that if they start veering in that lane, they get a lot of likes on TikTok and Instagram. And so they, I mean, I've heard it from the witnesses. I went down this lane because it was popular. That person wasn't confused. However, this particular type of person gets there. These aren't Christian statistics. I didn't get this from southernbaptist.com. This particular statistic comes from the National Library of Medicine. And others confirm it. They report data concerning suicidality among transgenders indicates that 82% of transgender individuals have considered killing themselves and 40% have attempted suicide with suicidality highest among transgender youth. It's trending and as they go down the path it is unfulfilling. Of course you'd be depressed. It is not an answer. A British daily newspaper, The Guardian, I don't read it, so don't judge me, but they have this particular stat from the Trevor Project, a nonprofit organization dedicated to LGBTQ plus youth suicide prevention. They release a statement uh, on state level data from nearly 34,000. I'm just reading it. Queer and trans youth ages 13 to 24 showing alarmingly high rates of suicide attempts, depression, and anxiety across liberal and conservative regions. Because some people say, oh, it's only in the conservative regions because those moms and dads are like, you have to be a certain gender. And so those are the ones that get depressed. Well, it's in the liberal regions too where they're, do it, celebrate it. We'll put a flag out front. I'll be a cool parent too. Across that group, more than uh, 34,000 Uh, surveyed, more than 50% of transgender and non-binary youth in states across the United States seriously considered suicide in the past year, according to a new survey data on a worsening LGTBQ plus youth mental health crisis. There's a part of me that says, well, it's not really about mental health. Well, it is if, if you're looking at it from a spiritual Vantage point. What does a mind look like that's stung to be tormented? You're not you. You're not your identity. And then we see this agenda being pressed upon our kids. Like drag queen story time with children being on trend in libraries, schools, and churches. Quote unquote churches. Not lampstand churches. You may be aware of Illinois State Bill 818 that our particular school district right now is in a lawsuit with uh, the, the state over. The new comprehensive sexual health and education standards that are rolling out. So when kids are being taught sex ed, these are the standards. In this grade, they should be taught this. They should be able to answer this question. In this grade, they should be answer, able to answer this question. State Bill 818, and as Tina reminds me, this is why y'all need to show up at uh, the board meetings. Grades K through 2nd, 
Here are the standards that the state is pushing into public schools. Identify different kinds of families. Example, nuclear, single parent, blended intergenerational, cohabitating, adoptive, foster, same gender, interracial. See how they throw legitimate ones with illegitimate ones all together. Define gender, gender identity, and gender role stereotypes. In other words, here's the stereotypes, here's the real deal. List medically accurate names for body parts, including the genitals. Kindergarten. Grades three through five. Explain common human sexual development and the role of hormones. Example, romantic and sexual feelings. Some of these words I'm just going to change because I'm in a pulpit. Self-gratification. Third grade. Mood swings. Timing of pubertal, pubertal onset. Describe the role hormones play in physical, social, cognitive, emotional changes during adolescence. And the potential role of hormone blockers on young people who identify as transgender. Third and fourth and fifth graders. Define and explain differences between cisgender, transgender, gender non-binary, gender expansive, and gender, gender identity. Explain that gender expression and gender identity exist along a spectrum. Public schools aren't indoctrinating my kids. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Now, you've got to investigate your school district and find out whether they're doing this or not. Are they fighting it? Are they accepting it? Are they one of the schools pushing it? But you should know what your kids are hearing. Differentiate between sexual orientation and gender identity. Grades 6th, 7th, and 8th. They're not in high school yet. Grades 6th, 7th, and 8th. Define, and I'm not going to read these, but define various kinds of sex. The acts. Define sexual identity. Explain a range of identities related to sexual orientation. Hetero, bi, lesbian, gay, queer, two-spirit. Asexual, pansexual. Gather around sixth graders. Here are your options. There are other things we can get into. I don't want to make this all about sexuality. I'll just do one quick one and then I'll just wrap it up. But as we look at increased violence in the news, this comes from a a BBC uh, news report recently. It just says this. It says, if it feels like these gun violence mass shootings Uh, are becoming more frequent in the U.S. That is because they are. Different definitions exist for what constitutes a mass shooting, but nonprofit, uh, the Gun Violence Archive, which counts shootings where four or more people are killed or injured, excluding the gun gunman. Are you allowed to say gunman anymore? Come on, BBC. Mass shootings defined where four or more people are killed or injured, excluding the gunman has tracked 131 such incidents in the United States since the start of this year. 131 mass shootings. It is a higher number of mass shootings than in previous years, according to the organization that publicly tracks gun-related deaths and injuries in the United States. 
The years 2020, 2021, and 2022 were also much more deadlier than uh, much more deadly than the years before. Now, of course, that article goes on to talk about gun policies as the answer. And as you're reading it, you're just like, they have no idea what the answer is. And let me be clear, the answer isn't gun policies from the other side of the aisle. The answer is Revelation 9. What is infecting people to the point of not only do I have a suicidal tendency, I have a homicidal tendency before my suicide. Or homicidal without the suicide, as we're seeing as well. But it's this longing for death. It's a society in which people are stung, there's venom flowing through them, and things are getting worse. And as I've already explained, I think it's our mistake to see that this as in the future and things being pretty okay right now. now is, it, is it possible things will get worse? Oh, I do think things will get worse. But I don't think, I, I'm not sitting here waiting for a line to be drawn where I'm like, okay, okay, now, now the trumpets are blowing. Now the trumpets have been blowing. And it's happening now. Spiritual warfare is now. What do we do about it? Well, as churches, we're the lampstands in the darkness. We have the truth. We have hope. We have the gospel. And we proclaim the whole gospel. That gospel includes judgment. Am I sometimes uncomfortable just explaining communion? We've got guests. We have first-timers. There's kids in here. And I'm saying the reason why Jesus had to take death is because I deserve death. Is that popular? Is that how we're going to triple our attendance? Probably not. But we can't skip that. What else does the broken bread mean? If not, I was supposed to be broken and he took it for me. That's judgment. Judgment that went on Christ instead of going on me. Well, what happens if that judgment doesn't go on Christ? It goes on the unbeliever. And in God's mercy, this might sound backwards, in God's mercy, he unleashes waves of judgment now before the end. Why would you say that's God's mercy, Pastor Lucas? Listen, he is issuing alarms and wake-up calls now for an opportunity to repent before the door to the ark closes, after which there is no opportunity to repent. So Christians, our option is to ignore it chalk it up to something else or know exactly what's going on but just be silent because it makes us uncomfortable or get out there and sound a little bit like crazy Noah talking about things that people don't believe in trying to convince them oh it's real and show them statistics do you see do you see what's happening the more christian morals and values and influence is suffocated the further down this crazy train we go further down the tracks on this insanity train here are the effects here's the t- statistics so as a church we should proclaim a whole message that includes judgment it's not a message of only judgment so we don't leave here today after our fellowship meal and then start making phone calls and just do judgment it's judgment with hope it's explaining to people that there is one who is over all of this who is sovereign and provides a refuge to escape, and that is Jesus Christ. This is why the whole book of Revelation begins with seven lampstand churches. You're the light, and you're the conquering people. We don't despair. 
We have hope. As ugly as the news is, as disgusting as it is, we, we don't despair. We have hope and we offer that hope to others as we see the locust horde at work. Let's pray. Father, there's so much to cover. I pray that we would walk out of here with the main point uh, riveted in our hearts and minds. It's difficult, indeed depressing, uh, to think about the tragic woes that our world experiences. Um, Our hearts break for the children of our community, the families, the parents, the schools, the teachers, the superintendents, people that know better but they're coerced by the crowd and the masses, people who don't know better because they've been down this trail for so long, people who know better but they have an agenda to gain power or influence or something else. And it's difficult to watch everything around us kind of going up in flames. But I pray that we wouldn't cower back into a little hole. I pray that we would be light and salt in an earth that needs it. I pray that we would trust that your gospel will uh, continue to gain traction with people, that your kingdom will grow. Even if culture gets worse, that churches expand. We're encouraged as we look across the globe, churches that are in difficult areas where you're, it's illegal to be a Christian, and those churches are baptizing and growing and are reading their Bibles and meeting together, even if in secret. Help us to be encouraged to take the freedoms that we still have now and use them to warn, but to warn with hope and to offer uh, a seat in the ark. As we close in the song, Lord, may we be uh, encouraged that you are over all things and we, not, we need not be afraid of demonic forces or evil because we are secure and sealed by you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close in the song together.